Good morning, uh, Joseph Johnson Ferry, Jensen family, Johnson Ferry, whatever. Uh, it's been a good morning, despite how that just began. It is good to see you guys. I want to welcome everyone. Uh, sometimes I forget to welcome the folks on our live stream. We have a number of people who watch from different states, even other parts of the world, and uh, grateful for you. We'd love for you to come and be here in person. I think that's the best option, but uh, we're grateful for uh, you engaging in that way. Also, just want to say hey to our moms. Love you, moms. So grateful for you. And as I say every single year, we literally would not be here without you. We are so grateful. Uh, for you in so many ways. We gave you these uh, seed packets, if I can find mine here. Well, yeah, we gave you these seed packets, and I, I'm gonna use this today in, in an extended illustration as we go into this passage in just a second to talk about gardening. Jesus himself talked a lot about gardening, about agriculture. He used stories all the time about vines growing and Farmers sowing seed and the kingdom of God being like a mustard seed. And there's just, there's a number of different ways in which Jesus talked about agriculture. And uh, I think this is not just because he's talking to a bunch of farmers, but it's because he understands that the kingdom of God is best described by gardening. Now, I know how much you know about gardening. I was driving uh, a few days ago from a meeting in another state back here to Atlanta, so I had some time in the car. And I love to listen to podcasts. I don't know if y'all listen to podcasts. I love podcasts of all different kinds, and I found myself listening to a gardening podcast. How adult is that, by the way? A gardening <laughs> podcast. I'll be eating dinner at 4.30 before you know it. Anyways, <laughs> I was listening to this gardening podcast and uh, learning some great tips about gardening. Now, I'm not a great gardener. My wife is a, is a great gardener, and, and she does a great job uh, with all that. I'm trying to learn to be a better gardener. But Jesus Christ talked about gardening, and I'm going to use that today in Hebrews chapter 12. Though the passage itself doesn't say anything about gardening, but I think a garden is a great way to think about the church. And so we're gonna use that analogy today because in case you haven't been with us, and I know that's probably a lot of people here today who might just be here with it being Mother's Day and you're here for mom and we love that you're here. Uh, this is a book that's written to people who are followers of Jesus, yet they're growing weary. They're growing tired. They're thinking of all that they had to give up to follow Jesus and there's a part of them that's wondering, is this worth it? Should I keep staying the course and so the book of Hebrews is written to them to run this race, to finish well. And last week, he gave these collective challenges to the church, and he's gonna do that again today in Hebrews 12, verses 14 through 17. So if you have a Bible in front of you, please turn to Hebrews 12. If you don't, we'll have the scripture on the screens. But once you get there, let's stand together, and I wanna read for us Hebrews 12, 14 through 17. Verse 14, here's what he says. Pursue peace with all people and the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble and by it many become defiled. That there be no sexually immoral or godless person like Esau, who sold his own birthright for a single meal. 
For you know that even afterward, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought for it with tears. I know that not everyone here today is a believer in Jesus, and we pray that you would be a believer in Jesus after hearing the gospel today. But this is a text written to those of us who are followers of Jesus about how we are to do church. And so let's ask the Lord to bless what we have heard and what we are meant to apply. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this challenge you've given to us to to be the people that you want us to be, to pursue the right things that you want us to pursue. And I pray that in this church, fruit comes through your activity and what you're doing in our lives. Lord, we love you. We thank you for this great day to be together. And we'll pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen, you guys have a seat. So Jesus wants us to bear fruit. Sometimes that's internal, the fruit of the Spirit. He wants us to be more like Christ. Sometimes it's external. That's why we give these keychains. And by external fruit, I mean people whose lives are changed because of the gospel of Jesus. And if you walk down the atrium, you saw this display that's been gathering, and we're gonna leave it up there for a while just to remind you to be praying for people that you want to come to know Christ, to discover truth, belonging, and purpose in Jesus. And uh, I wanna encourage you to keep filling out these keychains, keep praying for people. We've already seen a lot of people whose lives have been changed. We've heard stories of salvation. It's been amazing. And so I just wanna encourage you to keep inviting, keep praying for burden, opportunity, and boldness. But today we're gonna borrow this whole bearing fruit thing, and I'm gonna do so using a garden. Jesus used these metaphors, so with a little bit of creative license, uh, I'd like to use a garden as well. To think about this as the church, aren't you beautiful? This is meant to be a symbolic way of thinking about who we are to be as the church, and are we bearing fruit in the way that God wants us to do? So as we look at a text today, that's a pretty challenging text in Hebrews 12, I want us to also think about what this text tells us to do as the people of God. These are collective commands. It's not just, hey, you go figure this out on your own throughout the week, but this is a text written to a body of Christ saying, hey, Johnson Ferry, y'all gotta figure out how to do this together to be the church that God wants you to be. So let's talk about four ways to tend this garden. Four ways to tend this garden. That word tend means to care for, to look after. How do we tend the garden that we call this church, Johnson Ferry? The first way is this. We gotta check the pH level. And by that, we mean peace and holiness. See what I did there? Amazing. Check the peace level, uh, the, whatever, the pH level. Now, one of the most crucial things in any garden is the soil. The health of this soil determines a lot of the health of the plant. For instance, like you can't put a healthy plant in unhealthy soil or it will not grow in the way it should. So one of the things that gardeners know to do is they check the pH level of their soil. And they might take a little kit like this and they put a little soil in there and then they can put some water in this little part right here. And then what they do is test it out and shake it up and then gives them a reading. And basically what this test is telling you is, is your soil too acidic or alkalinic? And so the pH level is what determines that. 
So a gardener knows that to have healthy plants, you first of all have to have healthy soil. Well, in the same way, when we think about the church of Jesus Christ, we're called to make sure that the soil of this church is healthy, the ethos, the environment. What's the environment of Johnson Ferry like? What does he tell us to do in this passage? Verse 14, he says, pursue peace with all people and the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. So we have two qualities of a healthy church here. Of course, there's lots of other scriptures that talk about other things that make a church healthy in the whole New Testament. But right here, he says that the foundation of our church should be peace. Now, when we hear peace, we think about it subjectively like, hey, I feel good about you, you feel good about me. But here, peace is not this feeling we have with one another. It is the objective gift of grace in Jesus that binds us together. In other words, he's saying that as the people of God, we recognize that because of the finished work of Jesus on the cross and because he overcame death and his resurrection and because he's sitting at the right hand of the Father right now, ready to come back again to rule and to reign, we have peace with God. We have been reconciled to God. That's the power of the gospel, that we have been reconciled to God. Though we were sinners, because of the grace of God, we have repented of our sin, we have put our faith and trust in Jesus, and he has changed our life. And so we now have a fundamentally different relationship with God than we had before we came to know Christ. We have peace with God, and that peace with God should be the foundation of our church. And because we have peace with God, we are also committed to the holiness as he says, without which no one will see the Lord. Now, holiness is not a concept that we often think about today. I think it's because we are enamored with the idea of grace, and grace is amazing. That God would allow any of us, knowing what we know about ourselves, knowing what God knows about us, that he would allow any of us to have a relationship with him is just simply mind-blowing and amazing. And we love grace, but we also cannot forget that once we are saved, God wants us to be committed to a life of holiness. We're not gonna be perfect. We're gonna make mistakes. But God's saying, I want you to be committed to me because holiness is healthy. Did you know that? Things that are holy are healthy. Things that are unholy, unholy are not healthy for us. First Peter tells us to commit ourselves to holiness. Notice what it says in First Peter chapter one. As obedient children... Do not be conformed to the former lusts, which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. Because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. God wants us to commit our lives to holiness. It says, don't, don't conform to those former lusts. In other words, don't go back to your life before Jesus. Do you remember your life before Jesus? I know there are a lot of you who you got saved as a young kid, and that's amazing. I love that. A lot of you remember your life before Jesus, and every now and then you can find yourself going back to some old patterns. You might even be driving down the road to hear some song and just takes you back to those pre-Jesus days, and you just remember what it was like to live in ignorance. But now that you've found the grace of God, he's saying, don't, don't be conformed to those former lusts of yours but conform yourselves to the holiness. Be holy, he says, for I am holy. God wants his people and his church to be holy. 
What's the pH level of our church? See, the reality is that holiness and peace are connected. Did you know that? Now, just imagine, I'm just thinking about where we love to find peace. And for a lot of us, it's in your family. I'm just thinking, what if I were to sit down with my family at the dinner table? Imagine this. I mean, we try to sit down as a family and eat dinner together. And as the kids get older, that gets harder to do. And, and every now and then, we have a meaningful, peaceful conversation as a family. It happens like twice a year. So I'm just imagining we're having this, this conversation. And what if it went something like this? What would you think about this? Let's say that I'm sitting there and I talk to my kids. and they're like, Dad, how was your day? Well, it was, it was good. You know, I went, went to the office and... I had some meetings, got some things done, talked to some people. Um, and then really I just spent a majority of my day uh, scrolling on my phone and looking at a bunch of inappropriate images that were lustful and that kind of thing. And they're like, oh, dad, that's great. Yeah, it was great. Yeah, you do you, dad. Yeah, thank you. How was your day? Well, dad, it was okay. I mean, I went to class, I, but my teacher really made me upset. So I, I cussed her out and then I went to key her car. Oh, that's great, honey. I mean, I, I don't wanna be judgy. Hey, you be you, you know? Um, then they talked to my wife. Mom, how was your day? Oh, it was good. You know, I got some errands done, went to the store. Of course, I had to put the groceries on the credit card because I used all of our savings for my gambling addiction. I, well, honey, hey, look, I'm not here to tell you what to do. You be you, right? And so you're thinking, well, that's ridiculous. But see, that's where the world does, does it not? We think that peace comes when we affirm no matter what people do, no matter what they do. But peace only comes when we are grounded in the gospel and we are grounded in our pursuit of holiness before the Lord. And I wonder, is that true of our church? I wonder when God looks at Johnson Ferry, I wonder what our pH level is. Peace, holiness. Number two, how do we tend this garden? We have to make sure that each is watered and fed. In verse 15, he begins a series of, uh, of commands, if you will, and, and he's gonna use the same phrase for all three in, in New American Standards as see to it. You might translate it, watch out for. Stay vigilant about these three things. Here's the first of them, and it's the second of the way we're talking about tending this garden. He says, see to it that no one comes short of the grace of God. Now, there are a lot of passages in Hebrews that makes you wonder who he's talking to. Is he talking to people who are genuine believers? Or is he talking to people who might think they're believers, but they're not believers? Who, who is he talking to? For sure, there had to be people in his church, just like there are people at Johnson Ferry. There are people here who are legitimate believers in Jesus. There are some people here this morning who think that they're a believer in Jesus, but they're not really believers in Jesus because they don't fully understand the gospel. And it makes you wonder when you hear phrases like, hey, make sure no one comes short of the grace of God. He's saying, hey, make sure that no one who's, who's not really saved thinks they're saved, and you need to make sure that they are really saved. I think that's, a, that's an important point. I just don't think that's what he's talking about right here. See, throughout the book of Hebrews, I think the author is speaking primarily to believers. And here he's saying that make sure no one comes short of the grace of God. I think about a garden. And for each plant to grow and to be healthy, it needs an equal amount of watering and nourishment and nutrients. But what if, you get the analogy, what if we only watered this part of the garden, this half over here, 
but didn't water this half over here, what would happen over time? This would fall short of the blessing that this is receiving because this is receiving nutrients that this side is not receiving. In the book of Hebrews, one of the primary stories that the author talks about again and again is the Old Testament generation who were set free from slavery in Egypt. And God said, I'm gonna promise you this promised land. Now, these were specific promises that he made to Israel. These are not promises he makes to all believers for all time, but to Israel and the old covenant, he says, I am gonna promise you the promised land and I'm gonna make a covenant with you. And God delivers them from slavery in Egypt. And you know the story, they get out and they see all these miracles of God and the Red Sea and the Egyptians die and all, all that kind of stuff. And they get on the edge of the promised land, but they were unfaithful and grumbling and want to go back in those old sinful patterns. And as an act of divine discipline, God does not allow that first generation to go into the promised land. In fact, they all die with the exception of two in the wilderness, never having gone into the promised land. Now, let me ask you something. When they died, did they cease being the people of God? The answer is no. But what they gave up because of their own disobedience and unfaithfulness was the blessing that God had for them in the promised land. I think that for us who are even believers in Jesus, if we're not careful, we can be saved and go to heaven. But if we live a life of neglect and disobedience to the things of the Lord, we can forfeit Blessings that God has for us in our life, even now. God wants us to be nourished by him. You might go, well, how does he do that? How does God nourish the people of God? Do you know how he does it? I think there's three sources that we see in the Bible. The spirit, the word, and the church. We need the Holy Spirit to be the people that God wants us to be. We often forget about the Holy Spirit. We just sang about the Holy Spirit, make your presence known here. We welcome you here. The fact is, once we give our lives to Jesus, we have the Holy Spirit living inside of us all the time, indwelling us. And we need to be growing in our dependence upon the Holy Spirit, but also in dependence upon the Word of God. Certainly as a church, we wanna be a very Bible-centered, Bible-driven church, but, but really, this comes down to you saying, hey, I wanna be a Bible-driven person. I want the Bible to be at the center of my life. I love it, by the way, when I see you guys bringing your Bibles to church. I know I talk about it all the time. I just, I love to see that. And some of y'all got these old raggedy Bibles, which I really love. I'm talking like duct tape, you know, all this kind of stuff. I love that kind of stuff. Someone said, I don't know who said this quote, but they said, show me someone whose Bible is falling apart and I'll show you their life that's not. And that's true. Are we spending our time in the word of God? Someone with the new Bible right now is like hiding it. No, my Bible's great. I just bought it, I promise. The spirit, the Bible, the word, but you know what else? The church. There are a lot of people today because they see things in the church they don't like and they go, well, the church is, you know, it's just a bunch of hypocrites and all they want is my money and all they're about is power and blah, 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 and all that kind of stuff. And look, the church has always been messed up. You know why? Because it's led by messed up people like me and like you. And if you're looking for the perfect church, you better not join it because you're gonna mess it up. Let that sink in. No church is perfect, but this is also the bride of Christ. 
And all those one another's in scripture about loving one another and forgiving one another and bearing one another's burdens, encouraging one another, that, that's what we talk about at John's Fair about belonging. We need each other. If we're gonna grow in the things of the Lord, we need to make sure that, that no one here comes short or falls short of the grace of God. No, no one is failing to receive the nourishment that comes from God. Every plant here is getting watered and fed. Number three, to keep a garden healthy, you have to wash out the rot. Wash out the rot. Sometimes uh, plants get diseases for a host of reasons. They don't get enough sunlight. They get some kind of poisonous thing on them. They, uh, they need to be washed. And so they make all kinds of soaps and things that you can buy. And, and sometimes you just have to wash the plant. Sometimes if plants get too much dirt or dust on them, they keep the sun from photosynthesis and all the things they do. Aren't you impressed? I listen to a podcast. But this is what you do. You, you have to wash the plant and, and help it to become healthy. In the text we just read, it says in verse 15, see to it that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble and by it many become defiled. He's talking about this poisonous root of bitterness that can defile the whole thing. Do you know what he's talking about there? In some ways, that phrase, a root of bitterness, is one of the more misapplied principles from the Bible. A lot of people think it means that you harbor some ongoing resentment or anger. Like, you know, you offended me, or let's say that you manipulated me in a business deal, or you said something harmful about me, and I have this root of bitterness that's growing up. And that's how we often apply it. Like, make sure there's not this root of bitterness. You need to deal with your anger quickly and forgive one another and all the things that God calls us to do. All that is very true. That's just not what the Bible talks about when it talks about a root of bitterness. A root of bitterness is a quote from an Old Testament book called Deuteronomy. And it was something that could happen within the people of God as a whole. In fact, here's a quote, Deuteronomy 29, 18. Make sure there is no man or woman, clan or tribe among you today whose heart turns away from the Lord our God to go and worship the gods of those nations. Make sure there is no root among you that produces such bitter poison. There are several references in the Bible to a bitter root. Sometimes you'll see the word uh, wormwood. There's actually plants still today, very variations of a species of wormwood, bitter root plants, and their leaves are very bitter. And this was a symbolic way of saying that this bitterness can spoil the people of God. Here, I don't think he necessarily means a person, but he means an idea. There are ideas that can work their way through the people of God that can lead to rot within the people of God. And we have to be vigilant, guided by the word of God to make sure that we are standing on the truth. And, and I think in every generation, there's a host of those things that can be insidious ideas from, I mean, think about all the political hot button things today to gender issues, sexuality issues, uh, views of the authority of God's word. Just, I mean, I could go down the list, but I do think there's one insidious idea that I have seen as a pastor that has been around now for a couple decades 
And I'm going to use a very technical term to describe it. It's not a term that I came up with. It's a term that a sociologist by the name of Christian Smith from Notre Dame came up with. But he calls it moralistic therapeutic deism. Now, I want to get philosophical for just a second, but I think this has tremendous application because I think most churches in the West, particularly here in America, have been infected by a lot of moralistic therapeutic deism. And these are the five tenets of that. I'm gonna give you a lot here. You can take a screenshot or just listen to what I say. Five tenets. What is moralistic therapeutic deism? It believes this. A God exists who created and ordered the world and watches over human life on earth. That's the deism part. They're not atheists. It's not like I don't believe there's a God. There's a God who, who orders and watches. Number two, God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other as taught in the Bible and by most world religions. That's the moralistic part. We want people to be good people. Like all the major religions teach, be a good person. Moralism. Number three, the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. And here's where we start to see a deviation from the gospel. Because this is putting you at the center of this philosophy. That's the therapeutic part. Number four, God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when God is needed to resolve a problem. And this is the whole notion of, hey, I can do whatever I want, say whatever I want, go wherever I want, live whatever sinful life I want to live, and at least God is still there for me to make me feel good about myself. Therapeutic, moralistic, therapeutic deism. Number five, good people go to heaven when they die. Now, do you see how insidious this idea is? Because there's a lot in that that feels Christian-ish. But that is not the gospel. The gospel does not say that good people go to heaven when they die. Now, is it a good thing to be a good person? Yes. Would you rather be a good person than a bad person in terms of how people view you? Yes. Is it good to give away money and help charities and be nice to people? All those things are good people. But let me remind you that because of our sin nature, good people don't go to heaven. Forgiven people go to heaven. Amen? That's the power of the gospel. Not that you are good enough to get in by your own merit. The power of the gospel is that there was nothing you could do to fix your sin problem. God did it for you. And so it's by grace through faith that we are saved. This is not of ourselves. It is the gift of God. I do think that idea has weaved its way into the church in so many ways because people think at the end of the day, what makes them right before God is that they're a really good person who feels good about themselves. That is not the gospel. God loves you more than you love you. God has a better plan than you have for you. And God has made a way that you could be right before him through the finished work of his son, Jesus Christ. And so if it's moralistic, therapeutic deism or any other kind of philosophy that influences us to, to go away from the gospel, we have to wash it out or we won't be the healthy church God wants us to be. So we wash out the rot. And then the fourth thing and the last thing, if we're gonna tend this garden, we have to prune away what is dead. In verse 16 and 17, he's gonna use an Old Testament reference that you may know. It's the story of Esau. He says it like this in verse 16. See to it that there is no sexually immoral, 
or godless person like Esau. Let me pause there real quick. Uh, the word for sexual, sexually immoral in the Greek is pornos. We think about our, our current word pornography, which seems kind of odd, like that comes out of nowhere. Like we're not even talking about sex. Why are you talking about that? Well, it's because that word in a general way can also mean unfaithfulness to God, which is I think what he means here. Make sure there's not a person in your midst that's an unfaithful person to God. And then he says a godless person, a secular person, someone who sees no need for all that God has done through Christ. And then he talks about Esau, who sold his own birthright for a single meal. For you know that even afterward, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought for it with tears. Do you remember the story of Esau and Jacob in the Old Testament? God works through this one family, Abraham, and then he has a son, Isaac, and then Isaac has twin boys. Esau's the older one, and Jacob's the younger twin. Now, the Bible tells us that they were very different personalities. Esau was, was hairy, red. He was an outdoorsman, loved to hunt, probably loved to fish, loved to be in the woods. Jacob, he was kind of more than Netflix, more of a, more of a food network kind of a guy, right? Like, these are two totally different people. And so Esau is out in the field hunting and Jacob's at home cooking. Now, here's a little background that's really important. It was really good back then to be the firstborn male. You know why? Because as a firstborn male, you had a birthright. And what that birthright meant is that when you died, you would be the head of the household. It also meant that when, you, when your father died, uh, you would get a majority of his inheritance and wealth along with other blessings that come from that. So it was really good to have this birthright and all the firstborn males had it. Well, Esau was the firstborn male because he was born first over Jacob and Jacob wanted that birthright and Jacob was very manipulative. And so the story goes that Esau comes in from the field and Jacob has this amazing stew and, and Esau is willing to sell his birthright for that stew. Now that had to be one amazing bowl of soup to sell that birthright. And then as the story goes on, not only does Jacob manipulate Esau, but Jacob manipulates his father Isaac in tricking him to give the blessing that was meant for the oldest child. Now, what we know from the Bible is that in God's providence, he meant for Jacob to be the son of the promise. Got all that. But what the author of the Hebrews is doing here is he's using Esau as a descriptive analysis to say, here's a person who was willing to give up his birthright and he missed his blessing because of something that was so temporary and fleshly. And I think he's saying to the church here in Hebrews, is there are some of you that are despising this new covenant found in Jesus Christ and you are willing to neglect it and despise it because you are not willing to pay the temporary price of patience for the eternal reward that's coming through Christ. Jesus Christ will one day prune his church. Now, now you know, to be an effective gardener, sometimes you have to prune. Sometimes you have to find these dead plants, and in order to save the whole plant, you have to find you know, leaves that are dead and make sure that these dead leaves don't infect the rest. And, and Jesus certainly talks about ways in which he, he prunes his plants in this life to make sure they grow in the way he wants them to grow. But, but also Jesus talks about 
that one day there's coming a day where this great pruning's gonna happen. Have you heard this parable? He said there was this farmer that goes out to sow seeds in his field. And he's gonna sow wheat seeds, so wheat will grow up in the fields. But what he didn't know is that around midnight, his enemy, maybe a neighbor who didn't want him to do well, he came in and he sowed weeds in the field. And you know what happens, a couple months pass, and initially they all look the same, but before long you got a field covered with both wheat and weeds. And Jesus is telling this story and they ask, what should we do? Should we then get rid of all the weeds so it's just the wheat? And Jesus, having a different timetable than most of them, said, no, 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 I don't want you to do that. Here's what he said in Matthew 13. He says, no, he answered, because while you are pulling the weeds, you may uproot the wheat with them. In other words, you may mess up the wheat by you trying to be the one that deciphers all that. He said, let them both grow together until the harvest. At that time, I will tell the harvesters, First, collect the weeds and, the, uh, and tie them in bundles to be burned, then gather the wheat and bring them into my barn. And then Jesus then gives the meaning of the story, Matthew 13. He says, you know what this is really about? God is sowing seeds and people are generally coming to faith in Christ. Satan is sowing weeds, people who think they're believers but not because they're deceived by the God of this world. And he says, there is a day coming, and this is a shocking story, there is a day coming where God will take all of the sons and daughters of righteousness and bind them together and tie them together and bring them into his kingdom to be with him forever and ever. And there is a day coming where God will prune all of the weeds out and say, depart from me, for I never knew you. Are we ready for that harvest day? This passage in Hebrews is a challenging passage because it's reminding us of what's at stake. So let me ask you, as an individual, are you bearing the fruit that Jesus wants you to bear in your life? How about as a church? Are we bearing the fruit that Jesus wants us to bear as a church? How about our mission? Are we passionate about seeing our lost family and friends come to Christ? This is why this matters so much because we want people to know Jesus so they could bear the fruit and be the sons and daughters of the kingdom that he longs for them to be. I love what Carl F.H. Henry said. He said, the gospel is only good news if it gets there in time. So we gotta take passages like this very seriously to make sure that we're the church that God wants us to be living on mission in the way God wants us to live on mission, which is why I'm so excited that today we're gonna end our time together by commissioning some of our sent ones. But before they do that, before they come up here, we should probably just pray about this passage and what we've heard and maybe what God's leading some of you to do. I, I believe there are people in this room that need to give their life to Jesus that you need to repent of your sin and put your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus so you can stop being a weed and start being the wheat and bearing fruit. Let's pray together. Father, it's a challenging text and I just pray, God, that we would 
appropriately apply it to our lives. Lord, we, we need your grace. We're not gonna get it perfect, but I, I pray that as a church, Lord, we're pursuing the peace that only comes from you and the holiness with which, without which no one will see the Lord. I pray that as a church, we are seeing to it that no one here at Johnson Ferry is falling short of the grace of God. Lord, I pray that there's no root of bitterness that's working its way through the people of Johnson Ferry in a way that's taking us away from the health and blessing that you want us to live in according to your word. And, and Lord, I pray that if there is someone here today who is who's unfaithful to God and someone here today who is secular, godless, that Lord, before it's too late, they would turn their life over to you and be radically saved by the power of Jesus. God, thank you for challenging texts like this. Thank you for your spirit's work. And I pray that we're faithful to you. And I pray that in Jesus' name, amen.